This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host in today's episode. Joining me today is Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries. And we just ate La Bamba. Yeah, which means I'm having trouble catching my breath with my belt as tight as it is right now. (laughs) So if you hear me and I'm very breathy, that's just a hint that I'm overweight. (laughs) And La Bamba is too good. Yeah, you just keep going. Yeah. You're full by the time your meal comes because the chips and salsa, you've already eaten a full meal. And then you're like, all right, I'll have more. Oh, a quesadilla. Oh, and by the way, going away cake for Nicole? Yep. Sure. Have it all. Three courses. Yeah, this is this is a lack of self-control. This, yeah. this is what this is. This shows us. So the, the podcast, we're, we're both on the verge of being sleepy already, <laughs> just getting back from La Bamba, and I can barely breathe. So I, I may have to undo like or go back a belt loop today. Oh, no, it's going to be a great one. <laughs> so, and we're jumping into, right out of the gates, a story that's very bizarre, very disturbing, and like one of those stories where if you've never read the Bible, cover to cover and come across this story, it's not one that you hear about on Sunday mornings usually, <laughs> but it's like, wait, what What happened? Uh, it's a really disturbing story, as if we're coming out of Sodom's story last week with that destruction, as if that wasn't enough. Now we launch into this week with a continuation of the story of what happened to Lot, okay? So Lot leaves. He leaves with his daughters. His wife turns around and becomes the pillar of salt, and they go on to a town called Zoar. And if you remember, the angel said, we're going to take you to the mountains. And he's like, no, no, I can't go to the mountains. I'll die in the mountains. I need to go to a city. So they take him to a place called Zoar, and then today— in the passage where we pick up in Genesis chapter 19, verse 30, you have Lot and his daughters going, yeah, the angels were right. <laughs> you know, we, we shouldn't be in Zoar. Again, brace yourself, disturbing story. So verse 30, it says, Lot and his two daughters left Zoar. And remember, Zoar means down. It actually literally means down lower valley. And then they settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. So he's like, I got to go to Zoar. Now he's afraid to stay in Zoar. Before, he was afraid to go to the mountains. Now he wants to go to the mountains. It says he and his two daughters lived in a cave, which is just fascinating because you remember how the story starts with Lot in Genesis 13, where he's like, oh, I want to go to the wealthy land, and I want to I want to build my kingdom in Sodom, and he eventually is, he's at the gates of the city, and he's grown in prominence in the city. And what does that want him? He's this really wealthy guy whose possessions are so massive that he has to leave Abraham to go to Sodom and take some of that land, and now he's lost his wife, he's lost presumably a great deal of his possessions, and he and his daughters are living in a cave. So this is what happens when you chase after the garden paradise that is absent of the Lord. You lose. Hmm. And you imagine he lost all of his wealth. It's not like he has a bank account somewhere. There's no crypto accounts. Like Mm -hmm. Their wealth back then was material goods that you assume Mm-hmm. He did not round up everything and get it all out of yeah, Sodom. Yeah, no. 
Remember, the angels, he's like, uh, uh, hold on, hold on. And the angels, literally, it says, they grab him by the hand and they escort him out. And it's not like Lot had time to say, wait a minute, remember all those herds that grew too numerous for me to share the land with Abraham? Hold on, I've got to go get my cattle and I got to get my camels and I got to get all. No, it's all gone, scorched, Mm. right? All of his crops, everything he owned, he made it out with whatever he could carry along with his two daughters. And Lot has been transformed in a day. But what we do know that Lot escapes with, eventually Lot becomes a man of faith because the New Testament will describe him again, hard to believe in light of what you're going to read again today, as Lot just as Lot just right. Lotus. <laughs> righteous Lot. That's what I meant to say. He's going to be righteous Lot. So in Second Peter 2, if you're wondering where that reference comes from, that's where it is. And so ultimately, in his poverty, and the, the degradation that's going to come out of today's story, eventually we know that he's redeemed and he is going to become a righteous man. And it might very well be that the destruction of Sodom and the loss of all of his little G gods might have been what drove him to the Lord. Hmm. Yeah, it's a turning point for him. And mm-hmm. I think this story is... Yeah, if this story doesn't bring you to the bottom... Yeah, this story <laughs> makes you probably rethink some things. Good grief. So it says, verse 31... One day, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father's old, and there's no man around here to lie with us, as is custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. And right now is when you hear the record scratch, like, what? You you heard that right. You have the older daughter who's like, there's no men around here to get me pregnant, and Lot surely is not going to sleep with his daughter, so let's get him drunk so that all of his inhibitions are down and we'll take advantage of him, Hmm. which is crazy. So that night they got their father to drink wine. The older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down and when she got up. So he's well past the point of tipsy. He's obliterated. He's obliterated. And yet from this one encounter, she does become pregnant this, this one time. So the next day, the older daughter said to the younger, hey, last night I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and lie with him so that we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went in and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami, which is the father of the Ammonites today. Color commentary? (laughs) Will doesn't want to talk about this. He's just just moving right along. I just want to move on. (laughs) So so what's significant about this is the Moabites and the Ammonites, they're going to dwell outside the land, so they're to to the east of Israel and to the south. They're on the other side of the Dead Sea is where their descendants will eventually settle. But both of these tribes are known to be outrageously wicked. So their birth certificate being born and incest and all kinds of wickedness continues. And both of these two different tribes will worship gods that are in history known to be some of the worst gods, fake gods that are that are out there. So one of them is Shamash and the other one is Moloch and both of them are gods that require child sacrifice. Really gross, right? Yeah. 
So they have found, um, going back into the times even closer to Jesus, where one of the branches that kind of spawned off of these types of, of religions, where they, they found evidence that what they would do is they would have these bronze models of the gods that were you know shaped like statues or whatever. They would put a furnace behind them and the, the base of the statue. And the god, I think it's Malak or Shamash maybe, I think it's Malak, would have his arms stretched out, and you know how bronze is a soft metal. And so when you have the furnace that is firing away at the base, it would turn this whole statue into this kind of glowing metal. But as it becomes a glowing metal, it becomes increasingly soft to where you can shape it. And so what would happen is people would come up and and sacrificing their children, they would put little babies and toddlers in the arms, glowing hot arms of the statue, and because it's a soft metal, the weight would make the arms come down as though the god was accepting the sacrifice and the baby would drop down into the fires of worship. What's crazy about this, crazier yeah. about this, I, I should say. Yeah, right. It's, that's crazy standalone. Again, this shows you how rotten the world was before Judeo-Christian ethics really took over. But one of the things that you find is that when you're going through the Bible— Every once in a while, you come across a king of Israel who engages in this kind of stuff. You know, you have men like Manasseh who sacrificed his children mm-hmm. in worship. You have Solomon, to one of his wives, is building shrines to these very gods. So you see, like, really wicked stuff where Israel is kind of flirting with some of the Ammonite and Moabite practices here and there that's really wicked, and the prophets are going, stop, stop, you may not do that. But this is where the Ammonites and Moabites, really cruel tribes, really wicked tribes, horrible religions spawned out of these. This is where their birth narrative comes from. This is the Moabites and the Ammonites, where they start. And so they must be pretty prominent tribes of Israel's also. They have some influence over Israel at that stage. Sure. Like these aren't just small tribes just out of nowhere. Like because of these two acts, two prominent tribes who are evil and mm-hmm. wicked enter into the world. Correct. Okay. So what you're going to see, so we're talking Abraham, and Abraham is somewhere closer to, you know, Middle Bronze Age, you know, 2000, 1800 BC, some, something like that long okay. ago. By the time you get to King David and that era and the kings afterward, which is going to be 1000 BC and later— you find Israel that's going to war mm. with the you know territorial or trying to form alliances in that region, but they are an enemy of Israel. They are they are not friendly. They they do not help the cause. And God had told them, do not intermarry with anybody who claims Moabite or Ammonite religion. Like it's just it's flat up wicked. Okay, but. One of the famous stories that comes out of the Moabite line, just showing Christ's ability to redeem all things, is there's a very famous Moabite. Well, actually, there's two. One is the fat king Eglon, which I just, the name helps. This was not it, too redeemable. We should split this into <laughs> this one redeemable, not, one not redeemable. <laughs> so Eglon's not redeemable, but he's every middle schooler's favorite because he gets stabbed and poop comes out of I his I love preaching and, this passage at middle school. Oh, impact. yeah, you know that. The judges, they love the book of Judges. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. The book of Judges is like for middle school, middle school and high school, because it's right on that edge where it's like, does the Bible really say this? Yeah, they're like, is that is that in there? <laughs> 
But he's this really fat guy who gets stabbed and a sword sinks into his belly and all of his waste comes out and he's locked in a room and they're like, oh, he must be relieving himself. It lends itself to middle school humor. It's yeah, really yeah. great. So he, But he's not a good guy. He's, not, he's not a redeemable guy. But then the one who is far more famous and far more redeemed, clearly, is Ruth. Ruth is the Moabite. And if you remember David, and she's going to be the great-grandmother We've worked that through in my head. The great-grandmother of David. And so what happens, she has her in-laws that are escaping famine. They go to the land of Moab looking for food. The, the sons get married. Ruth comes along. The sons die. The father dies. And so you have Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, who they're partnered together because they're now both widows. And, and Ruth says, you know, your God is my God. Your land is my land. Your people, my people. And she comes on board, and then she's going to, to marry Boaz. They have Obed, who has Jesse, who has David. So she's the great-grandmother of David and in the line of Christ. So Moabite blood is ultimately redeemed and runs through the line of the Savior. So the Lord redeems all this mess even. Not the Ammonites, though. Not the Ammonites. Yeah, we, I, I got no good pictures for the Ammonites. They may be out there, but I can't think of one. We tried to find one for you guys, and we could not. So <laughs> if you guys have one, let us know, because yeah. we're interested. I would, I'd love to know that, actually. But as far as I know, I don't see anything redemptive about the future of the Ammonites. They're, they're a rough lot. Very cruel. Is there anything else we want to bring out of that passage? I think, I think we mind it. All right. I think, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it, may, it does make you wonder, you know, when... It says Lot has no idea, right? Yeah, I have a lot of actual questions about what actually <laughs> took place. So, I mean, you imagine... I don't want to get too yeah, I mean, nitty-gritty in this. But, it's, you know, he, wake, he wakes up and he's ignorant of it all. So does, does he learn? I mean, if you learned, why would you get drunk again? It's like, okay, I'm not doing that around them again. Well, you probably didn't know the next night because it's not like your daughter... But eventually you're living alone in a cave with your daughter and like all of a sudden two months later, three months later, she's got a little bump, you know, where pregnancy is starting and you're like, hold on a minute. Like there's no other men around. Yeah. That would, that would have been a tough day to reconcile with all that. Yeah. I mean, eventually he's got to come to know this. Maybe that's what drove him to become righteous lot. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) if that, if you living with your two pregnant daughters in a cave that you seemingly have impregnated, if that doesn't make you rethink life. Yeah. I'm guessing that and losing everything, chasing after the world's riches and. Yeah. That's a double rock bottom. Yeah. Poor lot. Yeah. This is rough. Yeah. But that'll teach you to put down the bottle. Yeah. Lot just lot, you know, (laughs) lot just, lot just right. Lot just right. All right. So now you get into chapter 20, now that we're putting that disturbing story behind us. Now we come to the next disturbing story. Have I ever told you the the story of the the lady from Ukraine that was like really offended by the book of Genesis? Yes. Okay. One of my good friends that I used to teach with had a son who went over to Ukraine to meet the woman he was going to marry. And while he was over there years ago, he died. And so... He died as a believer, and so, but his fiance was was not firm in the faith or whatever. So we're FaceTiming or Skyping or whatever it was back then, and she's like, you know, I'm talking with her about heaven and Jesus and salvation, and she's like, oh, you know, 
how how can I learn more? Oh, that's right. I did this because I remember the accent. Yeah, You're like, oh, that's rough. Yeah, I don't think you should do this. <laughs> so anyway, her her response to me after reading Genesis was like, this is horrible, horrible. And it is. So we go. But from, she liked Jesus. She loved Jesus. Well, that's you got the right message. Humanity's a mess and Jesus is a hero. Yeah, and that's kind of what we get as we go through this. Yeah. Right? Genesis, we see the, yeah, the real and, destructive elements and then we think, oh, good thing that Jesus yeah, exists. and the church, understandably, because you know when you get when you get to heaven, you should be excited to meet Abraham because he's a marvelous man of faith, incredible hero, but he is messy, and so is Lot, and so is Noah, and so is Adam. Like they, when you go through the book of Genesis, we tend at, tend to as a church want to clean it up and be like, no, 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 they're great. Let's let's just only look at the good things they do, which is a wonderful thing. We should do that for people and give them the benefit of the doubt and not focus on how terrible they are. But the reason why Will and I <laughs> are focusing on these stories is it makes you marvel at the faithfulness of God through it all. Mm. Like, how does God not run out of patience and be like, you're doing this again? You're doing, you did what? And just kind of wipe his hands of humanity. But it's like, you just see how patient and gracious and merciful he is to stories in the Bible that are shockingly bad. Yeah, and like he chose these guys. Totally. And stayed with him. Which is wild. Yeah. Like, we're going to see Abraham gets another chance at this whole gig. Yeah. And blows it again. again. Like, same story, too. It's not like he's adding new <laughs> obstacles. This is like, Come you on, can't Abraham. jump over it again. Yeah. And hidden in the story that we're about to go is God is kind of weaving in details that show you Abraham's not much better than some of the people that we go, ew. Yeah. And the Bible intentionally shows you that. And then, then you're you're made to think a couple of things. One, God is so faithful, so kind, so good, so merciful. And then you're to recognize I'm a lot more like Abraham mm. and my, you know, failures and rebellion and everything else than I am like God. Yeah. And thankfully, that same love and faithfulness and covenant that's extended to Abraham is extended to me, thankfully. So in chapter 20, Abraham, it says, so he's living, remember, he's watching the the clouds darken over Sodom. He sees the destruction and the smoke going up. says, from there, now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev. And so for some reason, he's moving down into barren territory. Negev literally is, is desert. And he lived between Kadesh and Shur. And for a while, he stayed in Gerar. And there, Abraham said of his wife, now, this should sound familiar, right? We're going back all the way to Genesis 12, and it's the same story happening again. And it's not like the author of Genesis went, yeah, let's tell this story. Like, it's, you're intended to recognize and notice this. There, Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Classic. <laughs> like, remember, we've heard this before. When Abraham went down to Egypt during time of famine, and was looking for sustenance, he goes to Pharaoh, who's also king, and he says, oh, you know, Sarah is so attractive. Now, we're talking 24 years later, and she's still attractive, <laughs> 90 or whatever, 89 years old, and Abram's still worried that she's a looker, and people are going to want her. And so he's still pulling this, she's my sister card, and it says, then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. So here we are again. This is the same thing that Pharaoh did. But of course, Abraham's going to learn this time, right? He's not going to trade his wife. He's not, no, he does the same thing again. 
where he sends her into some other guy's harem so that he can be safe, so that his life is not in danger, and he's going to be rewarded for doing so. So verse 3, it says, But God, again, remember last time, who had to defend Sarah? God. God. Abraham is is out, checked out, allowing her to be you know endangered, and God has to come to her defense in Egypt. And it says, Now, but God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You're as good as dead. Because of the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. And so what's interesting about this, Pharaoh never, like Pharaoh didn't have dreams, right? No, he just got plagues. He got plagues. But we're told Abimelech gets a dream from God, which is interesting. So he has an encounter with the living God. And what we're going to find is unlike Pharaoh, Abimelech actually enters into a little bit of a relationship of sorts with God because of Abraham's wickedness. You're, you're going to see this. And it's uh, at, at the beginning, it's a little bit more frightening. So Abimelech has this dream by night. And then notice what Abimelech says in response. It says, now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? And so I'm going to I'm going to give I'm going to do a spoiler alert as to what Genesis is trying to get you to see. Abimelech starts having all these kinds of experiences that Abraham has already had. He gets a a, a dream in the deep dark of night where the Lord comes and visits him. Well, that's Genesis 15. Abraham is given a deep dark dreadful dream at night. You have Abraham when he hears that Sodom is going to be destroyed, who goes and he pleads with the Lord, will you destroy righteous people and innocent people? And that's the same argument now here Abimelech is making to the Lord. He's appealing to the Lord's righteousness, right? You're not an unjust God, but will you kill? And he uses that same word, Sadiq, which is not just innocent. It's, it's literally righteous. And so what you're hearing is Abimelech has a lot of things that are like Abraham. And it's it's same arguments. And so verse 5, it said, did, did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? Like, I'm not to blame here. Yeah, like I didn't know what's going on. Yeah, this is Abraham who's done this to me. And by the way, she herself said he is my brother. So it's like I double-checked. I went to him, and he was like, hey, she's my sister. I went to her, and yep, he's my brother. And so it gives you this impression that Sarah is not fighting this. Yeah. Like she's affirming, oh yeah, he's just my brother. As in like, I'm, I'm okay to go along with you. And think about the dysfunction here. It's really kind of stunning, right? Yeah. She's complex. I feel like at this point in the narrative. Yeah, very. Like I have no idea. Like it seems like she's a party too, but then we've talked about this ad nauseum here mm-hmm. that like just this overlooked woman for her whole life. Husband won't fight for or can't bear children, keeps on holding on to a promise, gives in at some points, and you just see her overlooked after overlooked, and mm-hmm. you can only imagine that eventually you're just like, fine. Yeah. I'm your sister. Let's and you're, just move on. I mean, we're in Genesis 20. Two chapters ago, the Lord came to them and said, this time next year, Sarah will have a son. And so as she's doing this, as she's going to Abimelech, she's probably pregnant. As she's saying this to the Lord, and now she's going to jeopardize the knowledge of who is the father. And so the Lord has to intervene and not just overturn Abraham's lack of faith and faithfulness, but now he's intervening to save her even from herself. And Abimelech emerges as this kind of pitiable, you know, 
Like, what did I do? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm doing all the right things. Like, I checked all my boxes. And it says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. And so he's pleading with God, like, I've not done this. I mean, Pharaoh said the same thing. Why is this that you've done it to me, talking to Abraham? Um, you didn't tell me that she was your wife. So then God said to him in the dream, this is just, imagine being Abimelech here. Yeah. Which, by the way, that name means Av, which where we get Ava, is father, and Melech is king. So it's my father is king, and you're going to find multiple Abimelechs. So Isaac will have a, an encounter okay, with Abimelech. Yeah. It's a title, very much like Pharaoh. Like Pharaoh wasn't Pharaoh's name. It was a title, just like Abimelech, my father is king. It literally means like prince. This is the ruler here whose father was king before him. It's a dynasty title. So then God said to Abimelech in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I, this is God speaking, it was I who kept you from sinning against me, Hmm. which is pretty wild that you can sin against God without realizing it. And that he cares for people who aren't a part of his family that's right and their sin and their actions their behavior and and that's the graciousness he has to abimelech in this moment is much more gracious than pharaoh got yeah for sure and so it's like god is like jumps in front gives this dream ahead of abimelech actually following through on what he was considering to be a righteous thing yeah and god steps up and says "Whoa, whoa 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 if you do this you're going to anger me like don't don't go ahead with this it's me who's keeping you from sinning against me. Abraham sold you down the river. Sarah has sold you down the river. Now it's me pleading with you, don't do this, which is just cool. Like you said, he, this isn't somebody of the covenant, and yet God is intervening to keep him out of judgment. And it almost sounds like God's already been doing that, because it seems like Abimelech's like, yeah, I know the woman you're talking about, but I haven't gone near her yet. Mm-hmm. So it seems like time has passed, and the way the Lord speaks, so it's like, this is why I did not let you touch her. Like, even before this mm-hmm. dream, like, I don't know what obstacles were in the way or the busyness or whatever happened. He's like, no, this is purposeful. There's a reason why you haven't gone near her, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God is sovereign over all the details of your life. And you wonder, like, God is sovereign over every moment of your life, every molecule in the universe. But it does make you, like, sometimes you sit back and you just wonder how God has orchestrated your life to bring you to particular situations and decisions and to spare you from things. Or to allow you to plunge into things to where it forms who you are today. And it's just, sometimes it's really fun to imagine how God's sovereignty steers your whole life and the small things. So like one of my favorite examples of this, when I first, I was, cause I used to attend another church and I was looking for a place where I could do an internship. When I decided that I wanted to become a pastor, I was looking for a place where I could do an internship. And one one time they were going to Israel, this is 2010, and they had bought a scholarship ticket to go to Israel and to teach at different sites for a young a young guy named Ronnie Perry, I, I think is who it was. And he was getting the scholarship ticket to go to Israel. And the night before the plane was leaving to go to Israel for two weeks, I've got a, a my second child is, is more or less six weeks old at that time, like really young. I know you can see where this is going. And so we get a phone call like, Hey, Ronnie Perry caught the flu. So we're wondering, can you fill his spot and take his ticket? And so I asked Laura and being the amazing wife that she is, she's a real hero. For real. She is the real hero. She was like, you can't pass that opportunity up. Like you got to go. And so 
ended up going to Israel, got to know Tom much better, taught at different sites. And after that, he was like, hey, do you want to do your internship at Rio? And I was like, absolutely. That sounds amazing. And so like, it's a bizarre thing that I am now a pastor on staff at Rio because Ronnie Perry caught the flu. Thanks, Ronnie, and your bad immune system. <laughs> and I don't, I think it was Ronnie. But anyway, that's wild, you know? Like, I'm sure when he's sitting there yakking into the toilet with the flu, he's not going, but this is serving a greater purpose, yeah. <laughs> you know? Like somebody's life is being changed because of this. That's right. But in God's sovereignty, these little details like mm. that woven together to bring me exactly to the point I am today. And there's probably some people who are like, Ronnie, you Ronnie. shouldn't have got sick. <laughs> Toughen up, Ronnie. So anyway, if it wasn't Ronnie, I'm sorry, Ronnie. <laughs> Ronnie, do you ever hear this? You, yeah, like, what are, what are they talking about? It was, anyway, I'll have to ask Dr. Gage who it was. Anyway, moving right along. It was I who kept you from sinning. And then listen to what he says. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you. And you shall live. Now, if I'm a Bimelech, he's, at, he's got to be like, what is going on? <laughs> well, hold on a minute. The person who just sold his wife down the river to me, who lied to me and put me in the situation where I was about to become a sinner deserving of the wrath of God <laughs> is your prophet. And he's going to pray for me. Yeah. And you want him. This is this is how God works. So wrestle, like, how do you walk away with this? Because what we want to do is go, oh, this whole system's corrupt. Who would want to be a part of this anymore? What's the takeaway? That God uses broken vessels for ministry. And he appoints people, imperfect people, to be shepherds and prophets and priests and kings that are broken vessels, and yet it doesn't nullify their office, right? If Abraham is a prophet, it is the office that's powerful, not Abraham. It's the God behind the office. I remember a long time ago, um, there was some, when I was brand new in ministry, I had somebody who was on their deathbed, and they were like, we would really like a pastor to come and visit. And like, I don't even think I was a pastor yet, but I was like on the track to become a pastor. And I remember talking to my father-in-law, who is a pastor, and I was like, I have nothing to say. Like, I've never been through this. I have no idea. Like, how am I supposed to make their experience any better? I have nothing to say. And he said something that still sticks with me today. He said, Sam, they don't want to hear from you. Hmm. They want your office. They want to hear what the Lord has to say through a pastor. It's nothing to do with you, Sam. And that was freeing. And I was like, okay. It, this isn't about Sam. It's about me coming as a messenger of the one who has words that can help. And so let me just tell you what Jesus says, because Sam has nothing to offer you. <laughs> you know, it's the office that holds something to it. It's why, you know, if you get baptized by somebody who falls into sin, your baptism isn't meaningless now because it's not the priest or the pastor or whoever yeah. doing the baptism that matters. It's the office that's bringing you into the baptism, right? Or the, or the same could be said for a marriage. You know, if you got married by a by a pastor who falls into scandal, is like your is your marriage vow now suddenly less? Like, no, of course not. And so this is God saying, "Hey, you know that guy over there, that broken yeah. hunk of mess, <laughs> Abraham, who's who's throwing you down the river? Yeah, he's my prophet." So. 
he needs to pray for you, which is wild because it's like, here I am, God, talking to you. In a sense, you're praying directly to me right now, and yet I'm still calling upon you to go to him and allow him to pray for you. There's something to that. There's power in the church and the people of God praying for you. Now, you have direct access to God. This is what's crazy. Abimelech's talking to God. Yeah. And God says, I still want my people to be praying for you. What do you do with that? It makes prayer much more approachable in my mind. How so? That me, even as a broken person, can ask big things. Like, he's talking about living here. Like, this is not a small request. Like, Mm -hmm. if Abraham prays, you will live. Yeah, this is life and death. Yeah, this is not like, if Abraham doesn't pray, you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, this is not like, hey, this prayer would be nice. It's not just a prayer before a meal, but this is a broken, messy Abraham at it again in his sin, and the same sin that he's been in for decades now, it seems like, every opportunity he gets to do this, he does. <laughs> and God's saying, no, it's not just the words Abraham prays. It's not the prayer of those prayers, but me as God hearing those prayers and acting on them is the mm-hmm. powerful portion. Yeah. But like you said, Abraham does play a huge role in interceding. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's critical. And so that makes me want to say, man, I spend not enough time interceding. And some of that is shame that I could be like Abraham. Like, why would God save this person if it's coming from me? And I think that's a real thing we all feel. Mm-hmm. But then some of it is just like I don't realize that like, oh, that person's probably praying for himself. He's probably got it. No, but mm-hmm. God calls us to do that for each other. For There's sure. power in someone else doing it for me, and I should be doing it for someone else. Yeah. I mean, you think it's like, you know, in Genesis 3.15, it says that the seed of the woman, the savior of the world, God become a man, is going to crush the head of the serpent. And then in Romans 16, it talks about how the church is going to participate in crushing the head of the serpent. God is always condescending to use broken people as a part of his redemptive story. He doesn't just come and die on the cross and, and raise and go, okay, story's over, I fixed it all. He looks to a broken church filled with flawed people and says, okay, now the future redemption of the world is going to be one as the Holy Spirit works through these broken and flawed people to bring a redemptive end to all these different stories. And here it's like God is, you know, proto-evangelism kind of stuff where he's saying, even now, it is through the broken people of God that salvation is coming to your house, Abimelech. Well, that story's no different, you know? It's... It's like God coming now and saying, hey, I'm going to use all these very flawed people who probably you have a bad taste in your mouth because of these broken, flawed people, and yet they are my appointed people that are to be mediators in some sense of bringing the salvation, bringing their prayers, bringing the evangelism and the good news to you that the Spirit then uses to bring life to you. God is still the one who controls life. Mm -hmm. It's not Abraham. And yet God says, all right, Abraham, you're going to be the one that prays for this guy, and I will grant him life. That's why. That's really wild how he uses us, broken people, for those ends. And here you see it in Genesis. So he finishes that off. He says, but if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Whoa. So do not touch Sarah. So it's like, hear God, not, on, not only just intervening to save Sarah from Abram, but he's intervening to save Sarah from Abraham and Sarah herself here. So verse 8, it says, Abimelech rose early in the morning. He called all of his servants and told them all these things. So here you've got this little evangelistic, like, Abram's God. Abraham's God is, like, super powerful. 
here's what he told me. He's the just and righteous God. We need to really fall in line to him. And the men were very much afraid. They believe this God is the God of power. Then Abimelech called Abram and said to him, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've you've done to me things that ought not to be done. And here's where the story gets really kind of interesting because Abimelech is taking on the role of Abraham who's pleading for, for justice and Lord, you can't pour out your wrath on innocent people, and he's having the dreams at night and all this stuff, and God is talking to him. And now he's pleading with Abraham the same way, using much of the same language that Lot used when talking to the Sodomites. Like, you're doing things that is considered a great sin here. Like, this this is corrupt. We can't do these kinds of things. Except here you have the pagan outsider, Abimelech, who's looking at the churched, insider Abraham and saying, why have you sinned against me like this? And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? What, like we welcomed you into our land. You've been here. We haven't, I've asked you like, is this really your sister? Like we were good. I didn't know we had a problem. And yet you've set me up to be in conflict with your God. And then Abraham's answer is unbelievable, right? It says, and Abraham says, well, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. So the irony here is Abraham says, I did the unethical thing because there's no fear of God in this place. Yeah, like, because you guys are unethical and you don't care about God. Right. I don't care about God either. <laughs> so, I mean, here you have the prophet who is saying there's no fear of God in this place. He passes a judgment on the people of Gerar, and then who do, who is Abraham fearing? Hear the irony. There's no fear of God in this place, and I thought they will kill me because of my wife. So who's Abraham afraid of? Those guys. Totally. He doesn't fear God either. He's fearing the people of Gerar. He's afraid for his own life, and so he betrays the promise of God to him and Sarah, right? You're going to have a son, which means you're going to have to remain alive, <laughs> for that to come through and he's like oh no that can't happen that won't happen i don't trust god i don't fear or respect god i fear them and here you have abimelech and the people of gerar who says what they were greatly afraid of the lord so you've got the pagan outsiders that show more fear of god and respect for god than abram the insider it's just kind of wild everything is upside down here and they've only heard of a conversation that Abimelech had with God, whereas we rehash what Abraham's been through with God. Yeah. The first one is he's pretty much destroyed Pharaoh. Like the plague <laughs> thing probably should have been like, Abraham should have wrote down like, yeah. always trust God, always trust God, always trust God. And then you move into the covenant stuff and he's slicing animals in half and walking down himself. And then he's going and he's rescuing the Sodomites with 300 men, which I don't know, maybe those guys are really good warriors, but probably didn't seem like it. So probably God was behind them Mm -hmm. in that battle. Mm -hmm. And then you keep moving on. You have Abraham overlooking Sodom as it's destroyed. And you Mm got to be like... And just wealth upon wealth and blessing upon blessing being added to him. Like he's just seen it all, the whole part of his life. And he's like, "Mm -mm, these guys seem scary. So here's the deal. If you as a Christian can't relate to Abraham here, stop for a moment and get more introspective. (laughs) Because how many times do we have to see God's faithfulness again and again and again? 
and again, and we still find ourselves doing shameful, stupid, sinful, self-absorbed things where we fear the things of this world more than we fear God. And so I love, I mean, these are crazy stories, but I love the fact that the scriptures are honest about how broken even the heroes of our story are. Yeah. It's totally God's faithfulness because Abraham is not the hero. <laughs> I mean, Abraham, it's like Peter. You know, the scriptures show him denying Jesus three times. I'm so thankful that the scriptures give us our leaders that look like that because I feel like that a lot. Yeah. And it's not them that are our heroes. It's not me that's called to be the hero. Mm. It's me trusting in Christ, who is the only hero. Robert Alter writes a commentary on Genesis, and he hits on a lot of the same themes that we've hit on, but he, he just says it smarter than me. <laughs> so I'm going to read to you out of his commentary some of the similarities, just one aspect of it. He says, when, when Abraham first comes to Gerar, what Abraham fears is that Gerar, without the fear of God, will prove to be another Sodom. In Sodom, two strangers came into town, and immediately they became objects of sexual assault for the whole male population. Well, here again, two strangers are coming into town, one male and one female, and Abraham assumes that the latter will be an object of sexual appropriation, the former the target of murder. In the event, he is entirely wrong. Abimelech is a decent, even noble man, and the category of Sodom is not to be projected onto everything that is not the seed of Abraham. In other words, God's common grace of decency and virtue is not something that's solely for the people of God. You find very good, I mean, good in the human sense of things, virtuous people that are kind and honorable outside the church. And so God is giving us this sampling of a story where the church fails and those outside the people of God noble. And there's something to be learned from that. Verse 12, it says, Abraham says, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And so there's two ways to look at this. Either she's a half sister biologically related, but there's also a way that people used to speak in the ancient world. And this was actually a common practice where you would have an arranged marriage where the father would go out and would adopt a girl from youth and raise them up in the house so that they would go into the same customs. They would get to know each other, different bloodlines. And so the father would be considered the adopted father, but of a different mother. And so there's some who believe that Tara had adopted Sarah from a different home and raised her up, or it could be a half sister, which makes it a little gross in, in modern terms. It's confusing for teenage Abraham, no matter what. Correct. But it's not like there hasn't been plenty of gross yeah, we're not. <laughs> all over the place. Sadly, already. we just gloss over at this point. Yeah. So, you know, could be, could be half sister, which is really awkward, but they don't seem to mind. You yeah. know, in the ancient world, it just seemed to be No okay. one's like, well, it's weird. So verse 13, it says, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place which we come, say of me, he's my brother. And so the, apparently this goes back into the beginning of Genesis 12. When they're first leaving Haran, Abraham looks at her and says, I'm not willing to die for you. So everywhere we go, you're going to say that you're my sister. And this is like an agreed upon term. So it's not like, 
Now let's do that again. It's this is like yeah. the terms of their marriage going forward, which is just sad. Yeah, that's worse. That's premeditated this whole time. Yeah, like you think if he's just instinctually like fight or flight. Yeah, he's choosing flight every time. But if he's like. <laughs> Nope, here's the deal. Here's the whole game plan for the rest of our lives. As we wander, yeah, gross. which if you're wandering, you're going to end up in some places mm-hmm. that are strange. Yeah. And it's not like after Egypt, he goes, hey, we've learned that that deal's off now. <laughs> Let's renegotiate. <laughs> uh, so gross. Abraham. Yeah, he, he could do better. So then you get another echo of Abraham being shown favor because of all this mess. It says, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. So Abimelech is starting to look like the hero here. Abimelech knows what's going on. He's not obligated. God didn't come and say, hey, you must do this. But he goes the extra mile to show deference to God's prophet here and just overwhelms him with gifts and returns Sarah, his wife. Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases. And so what does that remind you of? Well, this is what Abraham once said to Lot. Remember in Genesis 13, when they, they have too much possession, and Abraham wants to avoid the conflict, and so he gives Lot the option. He says, hey, the whole land is before you. Dwell. You pick the direction. You go this way, I'll go that way. You go this way, I'll go that way. And now you have Abimelech, who is the Abraham which means Abraham is now the Lot, and you, right? Who's trading his wife, who's willing, like Lot was willing to offer up his daughters. You have Abraham who's willing to offer up his wife. You have Abraham. You have Abimelech who's now got the deep, dark dream at night like Abraham did. You have, you have Abimelech who's arguing, Lord, don't destroy the righteous. And so Abimelech is becoming all the things that Abraham should have been, and Abraham is being described as somebody that's really unethical. He's taking on the role of Lot, which is, what, what is this whole chapter showing us? I think it's showing us that a lot of times the outsiders look a lot more virtuous than the insiders. God's faithfulness remains on the insiders because it's about the covenant and the promise and faith. And yet a lot of times the outside world is more faith faithful in the sense of righteousness sometimes than the insiders so to sarah he said behold i've given your brother (laughs) you're still keeping that line right behold i've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver it's a sign of your innocence your righteousness in the eyes of all who are with you so here you have abimelech who's like you are stunning you're righteous. You are morally pure. And I want everybody who hears about this to know that I've paid an outrageous amount for your well-being, and I want everyone to honor you. So you have Abraham, who's not willing to give anything for his wife. And here you have Abimelech, who's just honoring her with an abundant gift, even though he never got to take her as a wife. Because why? He says, before everyone, you are are vindicated. I don't want anyone to question your purity. You belong to Abraham. So he, like God, is concerned for Sarah. It's it's wild how upside down this gets. Like I'm worried someday I'm going to get to heaven and Abraham's going to be like, kind of rough on me, dude, <laughs> you yeah. know. But the text kind of shows it. Like I don't know how else to read it. <laughs> so it says then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. 
So what do you hear in this? Again, you have Abimelech who's in the Abraham seat, right? Because the wives were barren, and now all of a sudden Abraham comes and prays, and now all of a sudden God overthrows their barrenness and gives them fertility. So Abimelech is getting kind of the same story in some sense as Abraham. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So that is where we end this chapter. And again, it's not a good look for Abraham. What do you do with that? I think it's still just a focus on God through all this. Because mm-hmm. I think if we were tracking and this whole idea of covenant and Abraham being the chosen, leaving and being faithful at times and being obviously very unfaithful at times, but back to, was it 15 or 17 when God walks through the animal carcasses? 15. 15. So it all comes back to 15. Mm-hmm. That if this, if Abraham and God both walk through that, Abraham is... He's, he's been done for a while. Mm-hmm. He's been out for a while. But here we go again where, no, God was the one who walked through. God said, hey, this is going to be on me. I'm going to fulfill this, really, no matter, <laughs> and he meant no matter what happens. <laughs> true. That you choose to do. And if that wasn't true, chapter 21 doesn't follow this. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't follow this unless all of that is true. Mm-hmm. And it's because of that same promise that you'll see Lot in heaven. You'll see Abimelech, I think, in heaven. You'll see Abraham in heaven and and so many of his descendants. It's all because because if you were trying to make the case, hey, Lot earned heaven. I dude, show me the passage. I can't find it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even even when he obeyed the angels and left the city of Sodom, he's pulled out. It's because he's being dragged along, you know, and even the angels are like, Let's go to the mountains. And he's like, No, I don't want to go to the mountain. Like every every part of his story, it feels begrudging, and yet he went. And that was enough. Even begrudgingly, that was enough. Yeah. And the same here, you see Abimelech as emerging as one of the most noble characters, at least at this point, that you find in the scripture. He cares about Sarah's reputation. He cares about honesty and virtue and justice. And he's speaking up. And when the Lord says something, he obeys quickly, even to the point where he goes to Abraham and he's like, please pray for me. (laughs) You know, like, he humbles himself and he goes to his people and says, hey, we need to we need to honor this God. He's like, when I'm looking back at the scriptures, like this guy is emerging as one of the most noble, righteous, virtuous men that we've met so far. And he's not the leader of the covenant, hmm. which is going to be a theme through the rest of the book of Genesis, because God's people are scoundrels. <laughs> you know, they're they're messy They're absolutely messy, and that's why you can't, like we've just said a million times, you cannot read the Old Testament, or for that matter, even the New Testament, with any other heroes but Jesus, because they all fall desperately short. We are a messy bunch. Man, but really, again, just like the theme of Genesis, like we've talked about this whole time, we see a faithful God coming to a faithless people, continuing to be gracious and merciful, and that fact will lead us to chapter 21 next week, where finally... The son of promise, Isaac, is given to Abraham in spite of everything Abraham in last chapter, now what Sarah has done. Mm -hmm. But purely God being God and saying, no, I am your God and you are my people. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring about what I have covenanted with you to do. And that's Mm -hmm. what makes it beautiful. Yeah, one of the things that I think is interesting, just when I read these stories, there's a part of me that goes, God, like, come on, show some justice here. You know, crack Abraham on the head for this. 
And the reality is when Jesus came, like the people who got the angriest at Jesus were those that were appalled that he showed such kindness and mercy to drunkards and tax collectors and prostitutes. And in me, when I read the story of Abraham, and, you know, because we all want to make Abraham like, oh, Abraham, Father Abraham, he's amazing. He has no flaws. He's the hero of the faith. But when you really see, like, Man, he, he he would fit right in sometimes with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the drunkards. Like, he's got some serious moral failings here, and yet God pursues him. Just like Jesus in the New Testament pursues lots of broken and fallen people, and it's the religious, it's the self-righteous that look at God chasing broken, fallen, notorious sinners and going, gross, what kind of God would do that? Like you find in your own heart a little bit of the heart of the Pharisee when you're reading these stories because you want God to just go, ew, Abraham, I'm done with you. Look yeah. at what you've done again. And yet this is the same God you find in the New Testament. Hmm. It's the God who chases the broken, and his faithfulness will never relent. And so what do we need to recognize? It's like Jesus tells us at the beginning of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the reality is all of us are poor in spirit. But we are so blessed when we recognize that, when we're not leaning on our own faithfulness and our own you know, virtues for our salvation, but we look at a God who comes to the most broken, because that's who we are, all of us, and refuses to relent and refuses to stop being faithful to the promise. Hmm. That's our hope, man. That's the only one we got. Thankfully. Yeah. So I'm really grateful when I stop and reflect on this that God defers and is so kind to Abraham in this story because that's our story. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, thank you for joining us this week on another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. Next week, we will be jumping into the chapter where Abraham and Sarah finally get their son Isaac. Long time coming. Yeah, 25 years in the making. God finally comes through, and it is a beautiful, joyful, wonderful chapter that God is going to use to change the world. So we will see you next week. Join us then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.